Hey everybody, welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm here with Andrew Vance from the Choose the Hard Way podcast, the podcast about how hard things build stronger, more resilient people. Definitely give it a listen. It is, it's like the Ritual podcast on steroids. It's great. It's fantastic. I was a guest on it, which is a good place to start. If you like this podcast, you're probably interested in both of us. So Andrew, we just saw the Tour de France stage seven uh, on my other podcast outcomes. I said yesterday, like, can he like realistically, can he just keep doing this? He has to like not win at some point. Um, no, I was wrong. Tade Pogacar. And that's also, he got called out on Twitter for saying his name different every time we said it. We did some research. We deep dove. We uh, reached out to sources on the ground in Slovenia. It is Tade Pogacar, as far as we could find out. Um, absolutely roasted everybody, extended his lead in the GC. But we did get a glimmer of hope with Jonas Vingegaard, who apparently his name is even more difficult to pronounce. And we've been saying that wrong the whole time, but we'll tackle that next episode. What, what was your takeaway from, I guess, the last two stages? But since today's was more recent, let's start with that one. Garrett Thomas looked better than I expected today. He looked pretty, right? Yeah, I actually was really impressed by him. Really impressed. Yeah, I, I was incredibly impressed. I kind of wondered what Ineos was doing as they were driving the pace heading into the climb, clearly trying to help close the gap to the breakaway. But I kept thinking, like, do you have a snowball's chance of doing anything on this stage? And it turns out Thomas looked pretty good. Well, let's unpack that for a second. I mean, Thomas looked great. Why would they care? I, I could not understand that because they don't, when they, by driving the pace, they probably closed it enough. You know, they just barely caught Kamna. Why would they want to close it? Because Pogacar just took bonus seconds. He's eating these people alive with bonus seconds. He's 35 seconds up on Vinigard. 20 of those are on stage win bonuses. Like they're all just like taking on water via Pogacar winning stages because he's a f- superior sprinter than the rest of them. I could not understand that. Like, why Why would they care about closing that gap? That I didn't, I thought that was the big mistake of the day from them. I, everything else was was pretty good. I mean, they, they rode that climb pretty well with Thomas. Yates struggled, but apparently he had a symptomatic case of COVID right before the race. So th- that's not going to help you. But I mean, do you have any thoughts on that? Like, why were they trying to go for the stage win? Like, what was that about? My read wasn't that they were trying to go for the stage win. They may have burn more energy being on the front. But I thought that they just wanted to stay safe and avoid anything potentially happening before they got onto the final climb. In particular, uh, on some of the downhill sections, you saw Thomas and another Enios rider, Ghana, I believe, out front. I think that they were just trying to stay safe. And also, you know, Ghana just naturally being a bigger rider on that downhill just momentum may have carried him up there. And then once they were there, they just kept pedaling to stay safe, stay clean, avoid having a wipeout on the way down. Uh, that's a good point. I mean, positioning would be like the answer there that they just wanted to be at the front. But I mean, I grabbed a screenshot with 17K to go. UAE is down to like three helpers, basically, plus Pagachar. Everyone else goes to the front to pull for them. And then, you know, a kilometer into the climb, they have three riders left which was key to pacing hard enough for Pogacar to get the stage win. I mean, that's, I just, if I was another team, I'd be like, we're going to make these guys do everything. Like, like don't hit the front at all unless you're attacking or I don't know. Yeah. But what can you, I mean, 
if you're Ineos, that's a decent outcome to have. They're probably realistically, the sad truth is they're not riding against Pogacar. They don't care about him. They're just trying to get Thomas on the podium. That's kind of my takeaway from the day for them. Yeah, you could be right. What did you think about Primos on that climb? I mean, better than I expected for having separated a shoulder and then having to put it back in on the side of the road on stage five. Apparently, I mean, it's not shocking because he's a ski jumper, but he's had he has separated a shoulder before. You know, I guess it would be if you've never done it, it's extremely traumatic and hard to recover from. But the more you do it, the easier it becomes to separate it and the easier it becomes to pop it back in and kind of live normally. Um, I still, I mean, if we saw, we had a listener send us a picture of that crash on Twitter, which was very nice of them, but it looked brutal for, for Ruglic. He's probably still feeling the effects of that. He finished 12. It's actually, he's shocking how much time these riders lost. He lost 12 seconds to Pogacar and Vinegard and the final, it seemed like the final 10 meters is when Vinegard attacked. Um, I thought it was a pretty good day for him. What do you think? Yeah. Again, if you've never had a separated shoulder and hopefully you haven't, but if you have, it's incredibly painful. And while Primos does, as he described, have a proprietary technique at this point for getting his shoulder <laughs> back into socket. Patent coming soon. Uh, yeah. Somebody, uh, again, thanks to all the listeners who've been shouting out and sending us questions on Twitter. I'm at Vance and at Hardway Pod. Spencer is at BTP Cycling. But someone wrote to us uh, about Primos's shoulder separation and said, hey, well, at least he's going to be able to sleep well. It's not like road rash because, of course, if you have road rash, you roll over in bed, your, your body sticks to the sheets. It's really uncomfortable. The scabs can rip off over and over again. So that's a big problem for recoverability and for getting good rest for riders at the tour. But you know what? If you've separated your shoulder, if, if you roll over onto that shoulder – you're going to feel it. It, uh, it is definitely not a good feeling. It's incredibly painful. It depends on the degree of separation. But given that he described having to yank on the arm to relocate the shoulder, that sounds like a pretty severe shoulder separation to me, Spencer. Equally, on the climb, it's an incredibly steep climb. It was brutal. He, of course, had to be out of the saddle, really yanking on the bars and it looked like he was flying until he wasn't and Pojakar just rode away <laughs> with Vinegard and they had that little duel there at the finish and no one else could even ride in their literal dust cloud, right? Yeah. I mean, it looked like the video game Spy Hunter out there, like someone who deployed a smoke screen. I was, <laughs> you know, I was watching, I was, I was clutching my spirit of gravel amulet as they crossed through there. I don't know about you. It's that tweet that was like, now that they've entered the gravel, they can fit. No one can feel bad about getting dropped. Yeah, exactly. I, but yeah, he, he looks strong out there. I mean, I know that we've been talking about the UA team, uh, throughout the week, Spencer and questioning like, Hey, do they have what it takes to take Pojakar to a victory this year? And we knew that they would thrive once they got onto the really steep terrain. But what did you think about their ride today? Um, so just one thing about Roglic. I mean, that was like the the hardest, the worst climb you could draw up for him where he is right now because it was so steep. You had to torque on the bars a lot. And then the next two days were in Switzerland with some, you know, a little bit of time back in France. I don't know if you've been to Switzerland, but they are, they grade everything down. Like it's like very, very mild grade climbing. It's going to be great for him. 
get to the rest day on Monday, then he's actually in a decent position. So this was big for Ruglitch. He still is like two and a half minutes down on GC. I think they're going to have to send him into a breakaway at some point to make him useful. And then that brings us into UAE. You know, they were pretty good today. I thought they used a lot of energy to keep that gap reasonable. I mean, it was actually the perfect. They calibrated it perfectly because they caught Kamna at the very end to grab those time bonus seconds. But they can't keep doing this. I mean, they were really struggling. You watched they had like Hershey, who's a, who used to be a good rider, I guess is still a good rider, was really suffering. He got dropped before the final climb. They had another rider get dropped before the final climb. I mean, they do, They are not like Fortress. This is not Fortress Pogacar. Pogacar? So, my God, it's back. <laughs> Pogacar. Pogacar. Yeah. Pogacar. Um, so, this is, I mean, he is vulnerable via his team. It would take something, if, if it continues like this, like it has, it's for the last two years, it won't matter because they can just get them close enough and everyone will work for them at the base of the climb. Where it gets tricky is, you know, what if Ruglitz does get up the road? He's two and a half minutes back. He might not get marked out by everybody. You know, that could get really sticky on a multi-climb day. Maybe not a super, super hard day because the harder it is, the more Pogacar can just sit back and say, yeah, you guys can do what you want, but I'm going to dust you on this climb. I mean, we saw what he was capable of today. He passed Vinegard, who I thought, for sure thought had it like it was nothing. Look, he was playing with them in the, in the end. I had put a bet on a live bet on Vinegard at the beginning of the stage when I saw the breakaway went because it was like really long odds. So I would I had a big windfall come to me if Vinegard won. I was devastated when he got passed. But you know we saw we see on these hard climbs like he's not going to get put into trouble in the big mountains. It's going to be medium mountain transition days where if you know and that's kind of the silver lining of a lot of these guys falling out. Like Vlasov lost a lot of time. Quintana lost a lot of time. Martinez lost time. I hesitate to say Guillaume Martin, but someone like Rigoberto Uran. I mean, what happens if, what if two, three of those guys get into a move? Can UAE pull them back? I thought in no way did they look that strong today. And we have two weeks left. Like he's not, it's clear that he's not losing the jersey. Um, you know, like some older school guys like Johan Bernil, like have this theory of like, you got to give the jersey up so you don't have to do all the work that's not happening anymore you know it doesn't seem to be a tenant of modern cycling so they are vulnerable if teams are get creative enough but if they don't once the the uh climbs get steep it's just too easy for Bogachar. can we talk for a second spencer about the curious case of mark hershey because he went from being an absolute breakthrough generational talent it seemed like in his uh, initial tour debut then he, he of course had a hip injury which was very serious had to have surgery on the hip now he's more or less a domestique doesn't seem to have the magic anymore but do you have any inside information on what's going on with Hershey yeah it's weird because if you remember that breakout tour that was only like 20 months ago that wasn't a full two years ago um seemed like the sky was a limit for him I, I don't know. A lot of weird stuff happened. A lot of stuff I don't like personally. He was on Sunweb two days into the new 2021 season. He got, he broke up with the team. It was unclear if he quit or if he got fired. Then they didn't release a statement, but like an anonymous source said to like a respected Swiss paper that like the team thought he was too big of a risk and his like moral code didn't match the teams. You know, the implication would be the guy's doping and 
they said like it was a liability to the sponsors to have him on the team. I read that as the team management leaking that to that newspaper. It just seemed like, well, if if that's true, you needed to you need to go to authorities with this information. This is not the brave move you think it is. Like, if a writer on your team is doping, you need to report them. Like, don't release an anonymous statement, kind of assassinating his character in a way that he can't refute. He goes to UAE like three days into the season. Apparently, it was for a lot more money, and the team and Sunweb got paid for him. You know that's some Sunweb's model now. DSM like they they sign writers to long contracts, like three four years, and they make money by once that writer breaks out, they'll sell the contract to a bigger team who has to pay to break the clause. So you know they might get like a six hundred thousand dollar payment for Hershey to go to go to UAE. They then take that money to find the new Hershey and sell them all over again. But and once I got to UAE, I was in conversation with the team because I thought it was weird that he just kind of disappeared. They said in 2021, he got him with his wisdom teeth removed early in the season. So that's why he wasn't good until the end of the year. It seems like an elective surgery, though. I don't know why you wouldn't just do that in like October or November. And then this year, I, this sounds legit. He did have like some hip issue and had to have a hip surgery. Like they were shaving some bone down. That seems pretty intense. Um, so that would probably explain why he's not as, as strong as he even was at like the world championships or European championships last year um, when he did come back and he was like kind of had semblance of the same form he had in 2020. So I guess one take would be the, the cynical take would be, well, his team said he was doping and now the word's out and he can't dope anymore. But I tend to think, I mean, the hip surgery sounds pretty intense. I mean, that would explain why he's struggling. The reason he's at the tour, if he's not good, is is less clear to me. I don't know why they didn't just bring another rider. I don't quite understand that. Hip resurfacing, not a minor procedure. That's not a laser facial peel. No, no. And actually, there's very few riders. I mean, if you remember Landis, a lot of weird stuff happened with Floyd Landis. But he won that tour for like three days in 2006. And, you know, he had a lot of personal turmoil going on. But he did get a hip replacement. And I don't I mean, even if like Floyd, all the doping fallout didn't happen, it's unclear if he could have returned to his form because of that hip replacement. Uh, there's not many cyclists who actually can recover from that. Yeah, I can't imagine at the height of your career. And there, you know, hip replacements definitely see a lot of people come back to full strength following those. They're generally not world tour cyclists at the absolute height of their power and fame. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think you're just like, you're going to lose too much time off the bike and the recoverability is, it's a very, uh, invasive surgery, obviously. So halfway through the stage, I had like notes saying like Bora's working over UAE. They got two riders in the break. They're forcing UAE to work. This is genius. What a bunch of geniuses. Their kitchens are fantastic. And then halfway through the funnel climb, it's all falling apart. Um, Kamna's getting caught. Shackman's been dropped. He's not going to tell. I thought Shackman would take the yellow jersey because he's only two minutes out. And Vlazov, their team leader, was dropped. Um, now after the stage, really, they have nothing to show for their efforts. Vlasov is in 12th place overall, almost three minutes behind Pogacar. Uh, bad situation. I thought they were the strongest team heading into this race. Uh, in in one way, this is a disaster for them. In another way, I do wonder if it is slightly dangerous for UAE. Because one way to read this 
Pagat, like I got a lot of texts like this kind of sucks. Like Pogaccio is just going to win every stage. Like, could he win every stage between now and Paris? Like feasibly seems like he can do anything he wants. He's already got the Jersey it's race over, but you know, with the team as strong as Bora out or cornered or injured, however you want to put it, you know, they could, they could come out swinging and put UAE into some trouble. I mean, it's going to be hard to hold this Jersey for as long as they want to hold it. And if they just keep trying to peg things back for stage wins, that could it, it, things could get crazy in the third week. Is is all is like my thesis there. If we don't have the strongest team with the jersey, we could have some pretty good racing. So I wouldn't lose hope if you're if you're getting demoralized that this race is already over. Yeah, it's not a fait accompli by any means. And just look at Matthew Vanderpool. I mean, interesting season heading into the tour, but the kind of rider who you thought could do anything at any time. Yeah. And, Suddenly, like he can't hang on to the race. And we haven't talked about Wout's breakaway. And I know that uh, readers who are also subscribers to the newsletter have already heard your take about that interesting Wout breakaway. But I mean, you have to wonder writing like that, how is that writer going to be faring two weeks later? Well, the thing about Wout, uh, we'll talk about the breakaway. It's unclear to me still what, what was going on there. But I think interestingly with – I listened to another cycling podcast. It's it's pretty good, the Lantern Rouge podcast. It's very inside baseball. They were really negative on both Yumbo and Wout after the stage yesterday, saying like their tour's over. This proves that like there's just chaos inside the team. I read it a little bit more positively, but then even today. So now they have – you know, they get second and third on the stage. They appear to have a GC rider that's – almost as strong as the strongest rider in the race. It's not ter- not a terrible situation. But Wow basically got a rest day today. I mean, he did a little bit of pacing, a little bit of positioning for Jonas and Primos, but he lost 11 minutes on that final climb, just soft-pedaled up. Tomorrow, I would say breakaway day. It's not a very hard f- uh, final climb. It's 4.8 kilometers at 4%. Um, I think he's going to get another off day. Sunday, not super difficult probably another off day there and then you have rest day monday and then you're into the next week so you know it can seem overwhelming like you'd be like wow this guy's just gonna like fall off his bike on stage 15 he can't do this but you know, since he's not a gc rider he is i think he is gonna get he really just has to go for intermediate sprints for the next few days do a little bit of work for the team and build he is like kind of built in rest days even while the race is going on you know so i, I don't know i wouldn't I wouldn't panic about him would be my thesis there. What about you? Yeah, I'm not panicked about him either. I was reflecting on Wout Van Aert and Matthew Vanderpool's cyclocross careers and how they made cyclocross racing. I mean, it was quite a spectacle to watch. I mean, it still is when either one of them enters a cyclocross race because they are at such a higher level than the very best riders in the world who are just trying to keep up while Wout and MVDP either have a battle or are doing an individual time trial, depending on whether one of them or both of them are in a race. I never thought that it would be the case that we would see that kind of writing at the Tour de France. It just it didn't seem possible that writers could have a level of talent that much higher than the writers around them. And at times, you know, we're seeing that from Wout, we're seeing it from Matthew Vanderpoel, we're seeing it from uh Pojachar sometimes. <laughs> oh no, it's back. 
<laughs> Pogachar. Pogachar. But um yeah, I think that uh it it just seems unlikely to me that you can put out that much in the first week and be there going hard in the final week. Uh, you know, equally another thought that I had is is it possible that we see uh Pogachar went on the Champs-Élysées? That is definitely see it's definitely physically possible. I mean, so at the end of stage 6, that was one of the most impressive reduced bunch sprints I've ever seen in my life. I mean, he exploded away from like, think about how good Tom Pickock is. That guy's amazing. Pickock looked like he was in sand. Like, he was going so much faster than everyone else, like twice the speed. He definitely could win on the Champs Elysees. He probably won't. I mean, think of the risk of that. Like, what if you go down in that sprint and lose the tour because you crash 500 meters from the line and break your collarbone? So that just seems, I guess, no, it wouldn't matter because he's the 3K rule. So, yeah, I mean, maybe he would. I, I, I doubt we'll see that. But, he is incredible. I do want to, you bring up a good point. I do want to touch on that. He's very good right now. Very good. This is a similar to last year. He was ever, effervescent, I think is how fancy people write when they talk about a really good cyclist. He was effervescent in the first week, first week and a half last year. Same thing with this year. He was not so good. I mean, I say not so good. I think he won two consecutive mountain stages. He was not as, he was not on a level above the rest by the end of the race. He was, just as good as Carapaz and Vinegard, but has slightly better sprint. So he was winning those mountain finishes. He was not fantastic in the final time trial. Um, I don't think it's crazy to think we'll see a similar dip. You know, there's a certain amount of energy a person can expend. He's clearly good right now. And I think that's part of the reason UAE worked as hard as they did to get him the stage win today. You know, you strike while the iron's hot, he gets a 12 second gap to Roglic wins the stage, gets a 10 second time bonus. You know, I think they're I think they're hungry for time because they know that this form might not last. So especially with a real we have a really hard week this this coming week. I yeah, as you say, I just, it, there is a limit to what a human can do. He can't be this good the entire race. So yeah, it could be that we're seeing too much energy expended now. But that also plays into the wout the wout piece because we have three really hard mountain stages next week. That's like chill time for Wout. Like he's not going to be doing anything. Really, we don't have stages for him until we get to a week from now into St. Entian. So Wout's got a lot of a lot of rest time built in. Pogachar, not so much. I almost think he's getting lulled into this, this like macho who can who can be the most absurd cyclist contest by Wout a little bit. Given that Wout had that ride on Von Two last year, do you think that he should be playing more of a role on the team instead of being chill and kind of sitting back on these mountain stages? Well, I feel like today they didn't really need him because everyone else was working for them. You know, they had Ineos, as the Europeans say, and UAE, both setting pace on that climb. So Yumbo didn't have to do anything. Perfect day for Yumbo, actually, today. You know, I think I'm just trying to look at a really, if there's a mountain stage with multi mountains that aren't HCs, like let's say the problem with like Wednesday is a tough mountain day where it's too, 
or category climbs, he's probably not going to get over that first or category climb. So he's not even going to be able to help on the second climb. Tuesday is a little bit easier, you know, and I say easy, but Wout is so good that, you know, there's, there's a fourth category, third category, fourth category before the final climb. And then there's a intermediate sprint before the final climb. He'll probably be with the team until that final climb, do a little bit of work and sit up. Also, you have to remember, especially with the conversation around, I also want your theory on why he did that breakaway yesterday. That's, that was insane. You do have to remember, Wout doesn't need to do any of this. He's the best rider to ever be a domestique. Like he's one of the best of all time. He's probably, at least right now, it's him and Pogacar for best all-around rider in the sport. He doesn't need to be working for anyone. Like there, there's no, there should be no expectation that he's a teammate to anyone. Like Matthew Vanderpool does not have a GC rider on his team that he does work for. Like this is crazy that he's even doing this. So a lot of with him, it's just it's a nice to have. You know, if he's there and he's working for the team, that's awesome. He's good enough. He can double shift. He can be a stage hunter and a domestique. But I, I don't think people should expect as much from him as they would like a normal workaday rider. You know, he he sh- probably should. The best thing for his career would probably be to go to a team like. I mean, think of like EF. Think what he would. He shouldn't go to EF because maybe that wouldn't be a great situation inside the team. But if he was at EF, would he have won half the stages by now? You know, like just a team with with no real GC contender. I mean, what what do you think? Do you think he should be doing more for the team? I thought about it more within the context of what we're seeing from all of the teams outside of UAE. And I'm wondering at this point if any of them believe they're riding for anything other than a podium spot. Do any other teams actually believe they have a chance of winning the Tour de France? I think I think Yumbo should. I don't think Yumbo's riding like they do. Um, but Jonas could win this tour. He's 35 seconds. He got dinged up. Think about that terrible mechanical issue with the clown car bike change on the Roubaix stage, and he's only 35 seconds back right now. So he could win this tour. Um, everyone else, no. But the thing you have to remember is you just put yourself in position for a podium, and then what if Tade has COVID? You know, what if Tade crashes? I think that's the, the strategy. for. I don't think Ineos is thinking, we're going to turn this race on its head and beat him straight up. It's just let's stay second, let's stay third, as high up as we can be, and maybe something will happen and a race win falls into our lap a little bit. Yeah, that makes sense. Another thing I noticed during Wout's breakaway yesterday, and I'm avoiding putting forth a theory about why he did that because it just, I don't know, it didn't make any sense to me. I don't know what he was doing. I I don't know if he... On reflection, though, if he doesn't go in that breakaway... The breakaway makes it because Alpeson was working really hard to pull him back. I think because he was up the road, there's a little, there's a lot of bit of rivalry there. It didn't make any sense for them to pull him back. Like Philipson was never going to survive that stage to to sprint. And there was a lot of teams doing a lot of work because he was up there. Bora doing a lot of work probably because they didn't want Wout to have a nine minute lead in the GC. So if he's not up there, it's a breakaway stage and he doesn't win the race anyway because it doesn't come down to a sprint. That is something to keep in mind. Yeah. And if, you know, to your point, if there are no expectations that he's actually a support writer in some of the contexts where we might typically see a support writer capable of climbing the way we know Wow can, 
uh, be used in the race, then yeah, I guess maybe it's okay that he's up the road wasting a, an insane amount of energy. Also, Spencer, I'm sure you caught that in our last episode, we talked about the lack of drop chains. And then sure enough, yeah. whilst up the road, he, <laughs> yeah. he, he drops his chain. It looked like he was coming around a corner and uh, shifting from his big ring to his little ring as they started to hit a climb. His good friend, Quinn Simmons, uh, gave him a push because uh, sometimes as his listeners may know if if you're a cyclist and and get out there and might have dropped your chain yourself but sometimes you can just shift right back on unfortunately Wout's chain got jammed and uh, he was quickly off the bike and freed the chain up and got back to it but wow that was a huge waste of energy a huge waste of energy and it's not clear to me why this is happening like what it didn't seem it wasn't under pressure. It wasn't standing up when he shifted. It just was kind of a normal shift. The chain goes off. Like those mechanics are good. It, I, it's not like Yumbo's mechanics aren't any good. Like what? What's your theory? Is this all just twelve speed disaster? I mean, it could be. It, you're right. Like the bike should be running perfectly. He does put out, you know, watts at a. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was just doing seven hundred yeah. watts when I shifted. I don't know what happened to the yeah, bike. Yeah, it's it's no big no big deal. I mean, but this all of this gear is uh, designed for competition. On the topic of bikes, I don't know if you caught this today, but on the Eurosport feed, they actually went through, um, Pogacar's uh, bike. Wait, I think bike. it's Pogacar. Pogacar's like, bike. Yeah. And they, um, so like they did, they ran through his bike and they weighed his bike. Do you want to guess what his bike weighs, Spencer? Is this his rim brake version? No, no, no. He's not racing rim brake at all oh this year. Oh my God. Apparently. I bet it's like 18 pounds. Uh, it was a little bit less than that. Like, so the UCI weight limit is bikes have to weigh at least 6.8 kilos, which is 14.99 pounds. His bike weighs 7.27 kilos, which is 16.028 pounds. So that's, you know, almost 1.1 pounds over the uh, over the UCI weight limit. And that's like a good three pounds me. heavier than bikes you could go buy. Like Peter Sagan was racing on a much lighter bike 10 years ago. Yeah, you could. Yeah, you could walk into a bike store today and buy a, a bike that weighs much less than that. But that's what they're racing at the tour. Do you want to hear about you, you sent me something that um, Simon Clark winner of stage five races with one water bottle cage because his disc brake bike is so heavy that he wants to save weight by only having one water bottle. But let's if you really think about this, what is the most important thing to your performance as a cyclist? It is taking on enough water. The moment you become dehydrated, you're putting out a fraction of the watts you can put out while hydrated. That's crazy that it's like this is driving riders insane. The fact that you would almost purposely dehydrate yourself by only carrying a single water bottle or put yourself in a position where you could become dehydrated because you're so scared of weight on a flat stage. I, I could not believe that. Yeah, I couldn't believe the story when I read it either. And there are benefits, of course, to these bikes. They're supposed to be more aerodynamic and the Arrow versus weight trade-off is supposed to be worth it. I, you know, maybe they're reaching the limits of the materials that they're using to design and build bikes. They certainly cost more than they ever have, even proportionally factoring in inflation. These bikes cost far more than uh, they did, you know, five, ten years ago. But 
yeah, they don't seem to be able to make them both arrow and light. Yeah, and I think the thing, yeah, arrow, the more arrow, the more material you need to make the foils. And I think that the thing with disc is the breaking so far away from, think of a rim break is right up there, right next to the triangles, not a lot of torque. A, a disc brake breaks so far, the lever is so long, you're down right by the fulcrum of the wheel, that you're really, you're really torquing on that fork and on your rear triangle, so you just have to add a lot of carbon to make that strong enough. I think that's what's going on there. Yeah. Yeah, I think you could be right. Another good tidbit that came up today, Bradley Wiggins actually had this one, that Yumbo Visma had provided chamois to the ASO in advance of the tour, thinking that they were going to have a rider who would be in yellow. And they provide the skin suits to the riders. So the riders are not riding their sponsor's clothing when they actually wear the yellow jersey or the green jersey. And Yumbo Visma had the foresight to provide chamois in advance so that they could be sewn into those kits. UAE, it seems, did not do the same. At least that's what Wiggins said. I don't know if that's true or not. That sounds true. UAE's not. The people who run UAE are kind of like old school. I don't even think this is like slander. They're they're like, they all got in trouble for doping. You know, like old school 90s cyclists and like don't seem to like think that that was wrong. They're just like very, they're in the, uh, the old era of cycling and they don't run the team in the most streamlined manner. So it would, would not surprise me if that, if they weren't up on the same organization level as Yumbo. So it sounded like Pagachar was racing today in a chamois that he perhaps is not riding at normally, which blew my mind to think that you're the yellow Jersey crazy and the tour and anybody, again, anybody who rides bikes, if you've had a, pr- a fresh pair of, bibs or a fresh skin suit and you're not familiar with the chamois it generally does not go very well your body typically is not going to like that well you could have a i mean if you get a saddle sore it sounds funny but like tom bonin had a surgery once because his saddle sore you're basically have an open wound on the undercarriage of your body that can get really really infected so it, it is definitely it's a crazy thing i mean i think in the olden day ye olden days you just wear your own shorts and then you just wear the jersey that's supplied by the team. I'm not quite sure why they're not doing that. Like, I guess they just think the skin suit's giving them such an aerodynamic advantage. You also, the, something else to think about is these, these yellow skin suits or green skin suits are incredibly slow. Like the fabric is significantly slower than the team's own clothing. Um, you, you mentioned uh, Simmons pushing Wout. I thought it was like there was no better representation of how good Wout is that Quinn Simmons, he's a former world champion. The guy's really good. Like recognizing like, well, we don't have a chance without this guy. Like we need him in our breakaway. And then that Simmons just got ridden out of the wheel, which you almost never see in a professional, at the professional level. Just like could not hold the wheel of Wout Van Art, which is... Like shows you there was a lot of watts happening on the front there. I heard that was the fourth fastest stage of all time. And he was off the front for almost the entire thing, which is wild. Wow, it looked like he was moonwalking as he got out of the saddle and rode away from Quint Simmons, who <laughs> yeah. looked like a frog that had just been dropped in boiling water as he went backwards. And so on the on the the chamois, potential chamois gate coming up, you know, if this does cause problems. 
Like, do you think this is, is this race over? Like, is there anyone that can beat Pogacar? Yeah, I think that you made a good point earlier, which is you never know what's going to happen. As we talked about much earlier in the season, the ground is undefeated. Pogacar does a great job of staying upright and avoiding wrecks generally, even though, as we've seen in some of the stages other than today, he's not always in the best position. He's not always protected by his team. But so far, his cat-like reflexes have kept him upright. And as much as fitness and ambition, that's one of the most important factors in winning stages and in winning the Tour de France. So I think he has that going for him. Will his ruck luck run out at some point potentially and if he does then Vinegard I think looks the best you know Thomas I I still think I don't know maybe like he's waiting in the wings he's riding consistently so far uh I wouldn't say that where would he gain time a, though that's the problem he's losing time in time trials and on climbs I'm just saying in the event that things go completely yeah. off the rails for everyone else, then, you know, he has, he has a puncher's chance, I guess, to knock someone out. But like, that's it. It is, um, uh, it is interesting. People tend to over, you know, it's like, I hate the phrase, like anything could happen. Cause like, well, yeah, I guess technically at any, like the table that my computer on, like in some version of reality stops holding the computer and it falls through like that is possible is it likely no um and with crashes riders who don't often crash it's there's definitely like a trend it's not just well gc riders crash so they all have an equal chance of crashing like garrett thomas and primos roglic almost always crash in grand tours Tade seems to never crash but if you think of like lance armstrong's run like seven in a row I think he hit the ground twice in those seven years. And one of those was like his foot kind of came out and maybe he like his body didn't hit the ground. He just had to put his foot down and it kind of crashed. So there's definitely like a skill to not getting caught up in crashes. I mean, it could happen. Um, you know, I would probably say like some sort of miscalibration with efforts would be more likely. And Jonas beats him. Yeah, I mean that would that would be crazy if Thomas did beat them straight up. He's only seventy seconds back. For you know, that's not that's not wild for this point of the race. Yeah, and on your point regarding crashes, you're right. There are trends where certain riders crash more than other riders and Grand Tours, and it it could have something to do with their relative level of skill, at least relative to their peers when it comes to bike handling, positioning, their team's ability to position them and keep them safe. But also, it could have something to do with central nervous system fatigue and, you know, the ability of the uh, body to transmit electrical impulses among nerves. So, like, they could just have lower reactivity due to a higher degree of CNS fatigue at specific moments of the race with Roglic, that was horrible luck that that hay bale happened to be there at that moment the other day. But uh, there could be other factors that are more rationally explained than luck. You definitely are more likely to crash when you're when you're uh, on the limit. We'll say I was going to say a less nice word. Like when your heart rate's at 190. Like I broke my collarbone when my heart rate it was like 195 in a race. 
is you're just yeah you can't react your nervous system is is really really dull relative to how it how it normally is so if you're stronger than everyone you're just less likely to crash and you can put yourself in a better position um who were you cheering for in the final today on that climb who did you want to win this stage uh i really wanted leonard to win I was hoping that he would win. I, I thought there was no chance that he was going to make it to the line. And, you know, I was really curious if Pojakar was going to come around Vineyard. And when he did, something that I noticed, is he did the I'm number one sign. <laughs> so he like, he came around him and, you know, the final five meters and then immediately put his finger up and, and looked back at Vineyard, which I thought was like a nice... Uh, way to just like put a knife in his heart and really drive home what must have been a very painful loss. And did you see almost, I almost didn't cross the finish line. <laughs> like he had to dismount right after the finish line. And then Pogacar seemed to like almost not realize that they just did a hard race. Did you catch that? He seemed, there seemed to be a weird moment coming into the final kilometer right when they were hitting the gravel. Rafa Micah was, was done. Like he could not pull anymore. And he had to like physically point and yell at Pogacar to to start going. Like he's like, "Hey man, you might not realize it, but this is really really hard for everyone else. You need to attack right now because like I cannot keep pulling you, and no one will be able to follow you." Did you catch that weird moment? Yeah, I did notice that, and then Pogacar took off like a rocket at that moment, but. It was very unsubtle and not typically what you see I've when an attack that. is about to be launched. So it did uh, it did really jump out of me. I had that in my notes as well. I I was kind of shocked to see that. Yeah, it's like I've never seen a teammate point up the road and say you need to attack right now. Um it you know, it it could just be he's so good that he didn't know it was hard. That seems unlikely. I mean, it's not like people give him a lot of crap and just like, "Oh, he's he's doping, he's better than everyone else." They need to go back and watch the '90s and the in the not the what do they call them the '90s the '90s and then the 2000s. I mean that so like a doped rider in the 2000s would have taken 15 minutes today on this climb. Like he's not he didn't even finish with a time gap to Jonas. They finished on the same time, so it's not like he's just crushing people. You know, so maybe it, he must it must feel difficult for him. I just thought that was like. Did they not talk this through before the stage? Like, what? What is? What is going on here? It was like a strange moment of, of disorganization, and you could tell Micah was like, "I am done being on the front. I cannot stay on the front anymore." And it seemed foreign to Bogachar that that would be the case. Yeah, the dishes were done at that point, and after the finish, Pogachar they had a they cut to him. You know, his riders continued to come in, and like two and a half minutes after the finish. He he just looks so destroyed, which you typically don't see him in that state. Uh, he seems a, a bit fresher than other riders typically yeah. after the finish, but not today. He looked like he was really, I'm thinking of a certain word, but he looked exhausted. And, you know, that did make me wonder about the sustainability over time of these types of efforts. That's a good, you're, you're, you're right to wonder about it. And the danger, the reason Micah was being so... Um, obtuse about his direction is the danger is if Micah can't keep the pace up and it slows, especially in that moment right before a steep gravel section, Pogacar's were really vulnerable there because if let's say Jonas comes around him, the pace slows, Jonas attacks, he could get 10 seconds like in the snap of a finger 
And then Pogacar's in a little bit of difficulty trying to nail that back. So, you know, if if it was going to go south for them, that's how it would go south, that he runs out of teammates four kilometers from the top of a climb, and then what happens? Yeah, and what impressed me the most about Pogacar today was the ability to surge multiple times in the absolute hardest part of the climb, and particularly at the finish when he... Because if you watched his body language, again, it was very different than what we typically see from Pogachar. He was all over the bike in those last 50 meters. And then it just seemed impossible that he was going to have another gear and come around Vineyard in the sprint. And he did it. So like that kind of surgy explosive riding when you're already on your limit like that is, you know, I mean, like that's about as hard as it gets. And he was able to do it repeatedly today. Is there a possibility that I mean, Vingard does not strike me as like the most, he's clearly a good athlete. I mean, he's better at bike handling than, than I thought he was. Um, he's not the most off-road. He doesn't give me off-road vibes. Is there a possibility that Pogacar just caught a faster line and that's why it kind of appeared that he shot past because they were on gravel. It was like 24% gravel. And he kind of was like, it looked like he was struggling a little bit to find traction with his rear wheel. He just kind of moved over a little bit to what appeared to be a smoother section of road and then started traveling twice as fast as, as Vindegaard and then passed him for the stage win. I mean, is it possible that that was just a faster line that he got on? That'd be a remarkable line if it could give you that extra 100, 150 watts at that moment. Because I mean, that's what it looked like to me. It was a real punch. It, it is possible that might come out in the wash here when we hear post-race interviews, which we're recording right after the stage. We haven't heard those yet. But, you know, um, I think you mentioned this, Spencer, but Vinegard had to be caught more or less by a handler it's immediately after he crossed the line. Pogachar like, rode through and was able to get off the bike on his own from what I observed. So I think that they were in different states and Vinegard just detonated right as he crossed the line. Yeah. 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 That was, he looked rough. Oh, so someone wrote in, I thought this was really interesting. I don't know. It's Lars from Denmark, a reader of ours wrote in, there's a cycling tip story that came out about this. Um, I don't know who was first, but that we were talking about Wout's Red Bull helmet last week. And like, why does Tom Pickock not have a Red Bull helmet? I can't, I'm embarrassed. I didn't think about this. Enios owns 33% of the Mercedes F1 team who's like bitter rivals with the Red Bull team. So allegedly they don't want Peacock promoting Red Bull on an Ineos team. So that would, that answers the question that we had last week. Cross sport rivalry. Yeah. Just talk about petty. Oh my. Yeah. But I mean, I'm trying to think because in other contexts, when Pidcock is racing mountain bike world cups, He's in Ineos kit, isn't he? Yeah, he's in Ineos kit, right? It, and he's, yes, and he's wearing or, a Red Bull helmet. He's not wearing national team kit. I'm even thinking about, I'd have to go check this, but I believe it was last summer. It may have been the summer of 2020 when Pidcock was testing equipment for his mountain bike racing schedule. And so Enios made a behind the scenes video. I'd, I'd want to check and see which helmet he was wearing in that video. But I re, off the top of my head, I believe he was wearing his Red Bull helmet. I'm looking so somehow, at it right now. Right? Yeah. So the story Is he go, wearing it? Yeah, he's definitely. I'm looking at him in 
racing in Ineos kit and doing photo shoots on the mountain bike in his Red Bull helmet. Well, that's the end of that. There theory, could then. be more to this story. This story goes deeper. We've got to find the bottom of this barrel. Yeah, we'll have to look into some of the Enios sponsors, team sponsors besides the title sponsor. I'm just curious if any of them, uh, any of their subsidiaries own energy drinks that are Red Bull rivals or what the case might be. But yeah, it's odd that he's allowed to wear it in other contexts, but not at the tour. Do you, I mean, speaking of Enios, what do you, what do you make of this tour? Obviously, Garrett Thomas has been better than expected. I mean, I think he's 36 right now to be doing this. He's up there. He's, you could say, you know, you just going by the stage results, calmness in between him and Roglic, but that's just because he was coming backwards. He's every bit as strong as Roglic, it seems like, who's probably the third best rider at this race. Like, are you impressed with him so far? Or do you, I, I'm always a bit confused. Like, why is Jonas Vingegaard not on Enios? Like, I don't quite understand why they're missing on all these top, top, top GC riders if they're able to pay more than everybody else. I'm utterly confused. I don't really know what's going on. And as much as I think that Thomas is looking strong right now, if we think back to the Vest incident and the opening time trial, which bespeaks a lack of attention to detail on his part, but also on the part of the team that has really been the team that's put forward the whole concept of marginal gains and, yeah, you know, have, have eight different washing machines, one for each rider so that none of their germs are being transmitted to other riders. I, I just, I'm not really sure what's going on on that team. No, no, that's weird. I mean, don't dryers get hot enough that they're killing germs too? I always wondered that about that theory. Like, are you getting have to- <laughs> sick from the dryer? I don't. <laughs> or I was the Ivan. They on the Peacock broadcast. They were revisiting the the RV situation, and Nico Roach is one of the broadcasters who was on the team at that time. And, I think we need to provide a bit of context okay. about I the forgot. RVs. We've, we've talked about it privately. We haven't shared this with viewers. So they or, ha- Sorry, with, with listeners. Ineos had a theory. This must have been 10 years ago where the team hotels a lot of times are not very nice. And it's just hard to move between hotel room every night. You don't get very good sleep. So they had like a big brain theory of like, why don't we just give RVs to all the riders and they get to sleep in their own private RV. And it's the same, pl- same place every night. Kind of makes sense. You know, it makes sense at first glance. That, you know, there's problems to me. Obviously, there was like whereabouts issues where they have to, their location has to be known by anti-doping authorities. And you could easily say like, oh, the RV was in a different spot. Sorry, we missed you. Um, to like, wouldn't um, haters or, or hooligans just stand outside your RV and make noise all night? If they like, especially in the Chris Room era, that just seems like that wouldn't have gone very well. The, the UCI ended up not allowing it because it was too much an advantage for a rich team to buy really expensive RVs to give their riders a better sleeping area. I don't totally hate the idea, but with that, what were we talking about? Why, why these don't actually make sense? But they were talking about it on the broadcast, but yeah, it was the same thing where it's like, what kind of makes sense? But at the same time, like, wouldn't they just isn't it just so easy for i guess like not saboteurs but just like evil people who don't want to see you do well to cause you problems and you're kind it's kind of a security risk like you know these people aren't heads of states but you'd want them 
to maybe have a little bit of distance between the public and you're just like sitting out there in your RV. Some of this stuff always just seemed a little half-baked to me. And it was like present, same thing with the dryer where it's like presented as like, wow, it's so innovative. And then you're like, well, does it actually make sense? Is that a good use of resources? Like, I guess that's cool to have eight washer and dryers, but you could probably just have one. The OPSEC at the tour doesn't seem to be particularly tight. I mean, we're talking <laughs> we're talking about, you know, we talked about this the other day, but professional cycling is one of the few sports where any person is welcome to show up and walk onto the field of play. People often touch the athletes. I mean, we saw today uh, like smoke bombs being set off. We saw... I mean, I don't know if you've noticed this, but there have been a lot of close calls between spectators and riders already. Also, some situations on climbs in particular where it looked like riders were not able to take the best lines or inside lines as they were going uphill because fans were just too far out. And I have to imagine riders at this point, they don't want to roll the dice and uh, come anywhere near anyone. And I mean, I know the French police are riding in front. They're clearing the way, but it's it's not not always enough. So as I think about an RV relative to an athlete staying in a hotel that probably doesn't have the very highest level of security, I'm not sure that it like from an OPSEC point of view, there's really much more of a risk. And as far as whereabouts go, I know that we're not at a point where athletes are chipped and, and uh, being followed around. Um, and GPS tracked for their whereabouts, but it must be pretty easy to tell someone where the location of RV will be, where you could even have a paddock similar to what we see in F1, where you just have team vehicles in a certain area. That would make so, the most sense. That, I mean, yeah. where it starts to fall apart is like, I mean, a lot of these towns are really small, especially you think of like Alpine towns, like could you fit, you could not fit 170 RVs in like a small Alpine town in France. So potentially that was ASO's thought process. It's like, well, there's just a physical constraint to how many RVs you can fit in a lot of these streets. So it, everyone wouldn't be allowed to have their own RV. Well, and I don't think all the teams, even if it were legal, I don't think all the teams have budget to secure an RV for every rider. So it could have been a level playing field type of issue. We already have tremendous disparity across teams from a budgetary point of view recovery and sleep are absolutely critical to performance. And if you stick everyone in the same, same hotels, I guess you're providing a bit of a level playing field there. But you know, if you talk to, to, uh, to writers, like they're not always in the same hotels and they're good hotels, they're bad hotels. So, I mean, that becomes an issue as well. Do you know how they, they do this? So by the end of the tour, your stars have to equal the same number. So like, let's just say a hundred stars for every team. So if you stay in a four star hotel one night, you have to stay in like a one star hotel to even that out. So I bet there's a lot of, I'd love to know the process for how they do this. I mean, cause in a lot of these hotels aren't very big. I mean, they must be spread out over, a, you know, four five, six different hotels and like someone's in the nicest hotel in town and someone's in the crappiest hotel in town like who's deciding who stays where i must be i would love to have more transparency into that back-end process about how they dole out hotel rooms but i mean at the same time like i can't just roll into town and know where chris room's hotel room is 
But if there's a big bus, I know I could just go pry the door open and like light a firecracker off in his RV to disrupt his sleep. If Chris Froome is staying at a hotel, though, I bet there's a fair chance that the team's livery is parked in the parking lot and the mechanics are out there working on the bikes. I mean, I know that's often. But the you case go into classics. the hotel and it's not like, oh, I know this is Chris Froome's room. Like you'd have. You slip someone a few dollars, Bitcoin, who knows what happens. But yeah, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody, <laughs> you're right. You can't, uh, it, it might be a bit different if you. I had, think if they actually would have played that out, there would have been like speakers. People would have been playing like loud music right outside their RVs all night. I mean, that team was, That's was sinister. absolutely hated in France. Like they're getting piss thrown on them from the fans. I don't think it would have gone well. Why do the French hate excellence? That's the topic we'll finish with. <laughs> Uh, I think my my last one for you, Spencer. What are you expecting out of Thibaut Pino in coming stages? Oh man, it's funny you mentioned this. Uh, I have a co-host on my other podcast who, I guess, you could have his like anti-French cycling leanings, and he was telling me he was like, I I like Thibaut Pino for the win tomorrow, and I was like, I don't, like I don't know, man. Like I don't think I can go on this ride with you. He's from the region where the stage finished today. I mean, he got dropped hard on that final climb. And I've been noticing Pino, I, I've been concerned about Pino all year because you think of Tour of the Alps, he wins a stage, everyone goes crazy. His first win in three years. Well, the Tour of the Alps, he should be in contention for the GC there. That's a five-day race, stage race in the mountains with no time trial. Thibaut Pino should probably be winning that race. Same thing with uh, Tour Switzerland. You know, there's a time trial. He's not going to do well on that, but he was nowhere to be seen in the GC, wins a stage, Everyone goes crazy. I was immediately like red flags going up. Like this guy should be up there in the GC in these smaller races. The fact that he isn't shows that his fitness is not well-rounded. Now we're at the tour. It's like, it's, it's big kids time. It's serious. Everyone's really, really good. And we saw the last two stages. He just wasn't able to stay with the pack on climbs. And we're not even in hard, the hardest climbs we're going to see yet. I think he's going to have a really, really, really difficult tour you know the only thing i could see working for him is you know like tomorrow's stage can he get in the breakaway he's gonna have to he's gonna have to start going for breaks for sure on on not the hardest mountain stages i said that was my last question but i have one more and maybe we have a listener out there who has the answer to this question if you do or if you have thoughts on it hit up spencer on twitter at btp cycling and hit me up at vance at hardway pod I was just doing a bit of research. I thought that Garrett Thomas's Oakley sunglass style, which was also worn by the loyal Lieutenant George Hencappy, was out of production, but it looks like it might still be. It was definitely in out of production for a while. I think they brought it back. Did they bring it? Did they bring it back? Did they bring it back just for Thomas? And it looks like this style is called the plasma and I'm trying to find what the style used to be called, but it's almost a throwback style at this point. You know, writers have an affinity for certain equipment. It can be good luck or it can just be their signature look. And I have to say, you know, this goes back to some of the marketing and branding challenges that cycling has. But when you look at the Peloton, if you don't know who Garrett Thomas is, you might 
be able to recognize him over time just from the glasses because they do stand out when you get a wide shot and you can immediately tell where he's positioned relative to his competitors. It's super um, helpful. I, they're really yeah. ugly glasses, though. I, maybe just get new glasses. Well, I'm not going to judge him. You know, we all like different things for different reasons. Is it kind of weird? I find it a little weird. Like, what if I went to the same breakfast place for 30 years? People, I mean, it's like some of that's kind of charming, but at a certain point, it's like, are we worried about Spencer's inability to handle new things? Maybe you just really like that breakfast. I, I'm I'm all for people do, doing the same thing. Country breakfast to start your day. Yeah. <laughs> I was just been, I, I don't know. I find it a little odd because he lost them. He crashed in, in into Gap. This must have been like 2015 and lost them. And he had to like put out a PSA, like, please return my sunglasses because they don't make any anymore. And like, I'm not okay without them. And you're like, what's the connection here? Is this like his rosebud? Is, is did something happen when he was in the glasses and he's like emotionally stuck in that place and he needs the glasses on? I'm just imagining him being a professional poker player Garant moneymaker, for example, and like this is his signature look at the table. It would be strong. I don't know what the backstory is. I know that someone does. I also have some back channel sources here. I'm going to send out a few messages after this. Maybe we'll have more answers when we're back on Monday, but I would like to know the answer. I want the truth. I think it's like Rosebud. We're never, we, we will never find out. It's only to be I, known. I will find to out. Garant. I. Pr- <laughs> I promise the listeners I will find out. I'm going to find out the answer to this question either with your help or without it, but I'd like it to be with your help. All right. Well, we'll have the answer at some point for the listeners. And thanks for listening, everyone. Andrew, thanks for joining. And we'll be back on the rest day to talk about what I'm predicting to be a pretty boring weekend, but could be wrong. Could be interesting. Famous last words. Yeah, it's See definitely you Monday. famous last words. Bye.